So this is July 21st, 2019 in Vienna, Slovenia, Sunday feast. And we're going to be reading from uh, Bhagavad Gita as it is, chapter 6, text 9. If any of you have a Bhagavad Gita with you or on your phone, you can take a look at this first. So it's chapter 6, verse 9. And children are welcome, it's fine. As long as she doesn't scream. <laughs> so this verse is Surin Nitra Yudashina Madhyasta Dveshavandushu Sadhushvapi Chapapeshu Samabudhir Vishishyate. A person is considered still further advanced when he regards honest well-wishers, affectionate benefactors, the neutral, mediators, the envious, friends and enemies, the pious and the sinners, all with an equal mind. So who are those people again? Anybody who doesn't have a book? Do you remember the list? Anybody from the list? Should we read it again? A person is considered still further advanced when he regards honest well-wishers, affectionate benefactors, the neutral, mediators, the envious, friends and enemies, the pious and the sinners, all with an equal mind. So maybe we'll go through this again, and let's each of us think of some specific person in our life that we know. So honest well-wishers. Can we think of someone who's an honest well-wisher? They wish us well, honestly. Can you think of somebody like that? You know, everybody knows someone like that. Affectionate benefactors. So this is a little more than an honest well-wisher. They actually do things for you. They have affection. This, can you think of someone like that? Okay. The neutral people were just neutral. Maybe someone you pass on the street. Or maybe someone you know, but they're, they're neutral. They don't particularly care about you and they don't particularly dislike you. Mediators, so people who try to solve disputes, who help you out. We can think of someone we know who acts as a mediator. The envious, so people who are actually envious of us. People who dislike when we have something nice, when we have some good fortune, they criticize. Friends. Someone who's a friend. Enemies. So they're not just envious, but they actually actively try to hurt us. Pious. So this is not so much in relation to us, but people we know who we would consider pious. They're good people. They do good things. And sinners. 
And we think of someone like that. All with an equal mind. So I'm sure when we thought of each of these people, we felt different emotions, yeah? So to have all with an equal mind. When we are considering what we can do to, to go forward in spiritual life. So I'm going to assume that if you're sitting in this room today, you have some interest in being a spiritual person. You have some interest in becoming enlightened or becoming God-conscious or maybe even falling in love with Krishna. But you have, we have some interest, yes? Yes. Okay, at least some curiosity. But I would assume that everyone here has a little bit more than just curiosity, but you'd really like to be an enlightened being, a spiritually aware being. But we generally find that it's not so easy as just saying, that's what I would like to do. Yes, I think I'd like to become enlightened, and then you're enlightened. It seems to take some work and some time and there seems to be some difficulty involved. Correct? Yes? It's not just that you buy some crystals and put them on your shelf. (laughs) You say some affirmations, I am enlightened. I am enlightened. I am not enlightened. Of course, it is possible to become fully Krishna conscious in a moment because that is our natural state. But generally, it's a kind of a journey to that awakening. And we may wonder, what is it we can do or not do that will greatly help us? Or are there things that greatly hinder us? And one of them is indicated in this verse. We must say there are actually many, many verses in the Bhagavad Gita that speak of something similar to this verse. It is is an often repeated concept that how we treat other beings is both a sign of how spiritually advanced we are and a means for spiritual advancement. So it's a symptom, a spiritually advanced person treats others in a particular way, and if you want to become a spiritually advanced person, one should treat others in a particular way. And the what's being asked of us here, and again, there's many, many similar statements, at first seems, oh, maybe I could do that. But it is actually quite a challenge for most of us. So we're going to look first at what is the nature of truth. If we want to be enlightened, if we want to be spiritually perfect, we should have some idea of what does that mean. We use the term in Sanskrit, param satram, the supreme truth which Srila Prabhupada often translates as the absolute truth. And I've met people who don't like that term, absolute truth. They think it sounds very sectarian. But it just means, absolute truth means something that is always true. For everybody, all the time. 
It's in fact an extremely non-sectarian concept. What is it that's true for everyone, all the time, in all places? So what is the nature of this truth? And once we understand the nature of this truth, then we can see how it's being talked about in this verse, if done properly, puts us in that truth, and if not done properly, blocks us from truth. So the nature of truth, ultimately, is love. Now that may sound like, oh, really, that was it? You know, the word love is thrown about so often here and there. Uh, you know, I love my toothpaste or something. That it just, you know, I don't know how much it really means to most people. But we can think of, you know, what does it mean to love? So psychologists, sociologists, they analyze that if you love someone or something, you find that someone interesting. You find the someone fascinating. And you also find whoever you love to be valuable. If you're not with that person, right? how do we know that somebody cares about us? If we're not there, they miss us. They feel some emptiness. If someone says, yes, I care about you, and then when you're not there, they never call you, they never write you, they never think about you, obviously you don't have that much value to them. Isn't it, right? And also there's a feeling of shelter. When we love someone or something, we have a sense that I'm going to be there for them and they're going to be there for me. That if I really, if I have a strong need, that I can go to this person, not that they'll absolutely be my need because after all, we all have our limitations. But they'll do what they can to help me out, and I'll do what I can. There's some reciprocity of, of caring for each other. Huh? But that could be just, if all we had was those three things, that I find somebody fascinating, I value them, I'm there for them, they're there for me, that might be simply a very good business relationship. It would be a very good business relationship. It would be very favorable to the people involved. But it might not yet be love. So a further definition of love is when the other person's happiness is my happiness and the other person's distress is my distress. Which is exactly the opposite of envy. Envy is, I'm happy when you lose something. Right? So if you see people in the Olympics, if they get the silver medal and they're unhappy, which always confuses me. I'm thinking, you're the second best in the world. You know, that should be pretty special. But now someone else is better than me. <laughs> so, but real love is... If you get something wonderful, even I don't have it, I feel happy. You know, somebody that's been looking for their perfect partner for 20 years and they're still not married and their friend gets married and they're happy for their friend. They're not sitting at the wedding thinking, why isn't it me getting married? <laughs> you 
really am so happy, my friends. I'm happy that this person I love got a raise at work. I'm happy this person I love got a wonderful job. To be happy at the other's happiness. To want to build the other person up. Right? In management and education, there's some people that have coined the terms the multipliers and the diminishers. The multipliers, they make everyone else feel smarter and more competent. And the diminishers, they make everyone else feel stupid and incompetent. So when we love people, we want to bring them up. We want to give them happiness. We want them to be in a position that's fulfilling for them. And this love is the essence of truth. This love is the essential factor of the supreme absolute truth, Krishna. He finds all of us fascinating. He finds us of value. He's there for us. He asks us to be there for him, although we might say that's kind of silly. How can I be there for him? But still. And he's happy at our happiness. And if we love him, we will feel the same. But it's not only about our relationship with Krishna. Because all living beings, Krishna says in the 15th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Mamaivamso Jiva Loke, Jiva Bhuta Sanatana, all living beings are part of Krishna. So if we love God, then we love everyone that God loves, which is everyone. If I say I love Krishna, but I don't have this same feeling for all living entities, I don't really love him. Everyone, again, is part of him. As soon as there's someone I don't feel love for, then I'm actually not feeling love for a part of Krishna. And especially if I feel envy towards anyone, which means I desire their harm, then I'm ultimately feeling that towards Krishna himself. So any feelings in that regard, what you speak of actions based on those feelings, are running counter to reality. In fact, they are the essence of illusion. Illusion is that we have some sort of absolute separateness from one another. We are each certainly absolutely individuals, but we are also one. We call this in Sanskrit achinta veda veda tattva. That inconceivably, we are all one and yet we are separate individuals. We can explain this a little bit with an analogy that everyone who's a citizen of Slovenia, hopefully, at least ideally, cares about the welfare of the country and therefore are one in their citizenship while they remain individuals. Or in a family, again, this is ideally, that everyone in the family cares about the good of the family. That may not actually be the case, but just as an ideal. And yet remain separate individuals. But on the spiritual platform, this achinja veda veda tattva goes beyond that. It's an absolute oneness and an absolute individuality. 
An illusion is when we see only the separateness and not the fact that we're also joined. If I think that your interests and your happiness is in opposition to me, I'm not seeing that we have it, we're joined also. It, it's not it's like thinking, you know, my finger's happiness is irrelevant to me. We're all part of Krishna. So this concept that I have some interest and I have some happiness that can be at someone else's expense is the essence of illusion. Now, one way that we, practically speaking, exhibit this sort of separateness and falsity in illusion is by trying to harm others. Wanting others to suffer or trying to harm them. Now, I'm sure all of us here think, well, I never do that. But if we're really honest and introspective, we see that such is probably not the case. First of all, right now in the world, and I'm sure it's been going on for a very long time, but right now it's just more obvious. If you open up any newspaper, magazine, print, or online, you're going to find people being criticized, yes? Someone is trying to take down somebody else. Isn't that a fact? I think every day, in any language, any news source, somebody is trying to take down somebody else. They're trying to get them removed from their position, or they're trying to criticize them, they're trying to block them in some way. Am I correct? Yes? And if we think about the kinds of conversations that go on when we're speaking to each other or writing on social media, how much of that is simply trying to say, oh, this person has this problem, this person is no good, this person's opinion is wrong, this person is wrong in that way, this person is bad in that way, this person is bad in another way. Many, many years ago, I decided that I was going to try to take a vow never to find fault with others. And the first thing that happened was that I realized how much of the time I was doing it. You know, it's like if you decide you're not going to eat sugar and all of a sudden you realize that there's sugar in everything. Yes? There was a time I didn't eat any sugar for two and a half years. I had to practically cook everything myself. <laughs> yes. So it's like that, this same thing with trying to find what's wrong with other people. It's a way of trying to pull them down. When we're saying what's wrong with other people, we're almost always saying, I'm not like that. I'm better. Which is not any different than saying, I want to have more money than you. I want to have better grades than you. I want to get the gold medal. I want my spouse to be more beautiful than yours. It's the same thing. And as soon as one makes a resolve, you can try this as an experiment to make a resolve that I'm not going to do anything to put others down. I'm not going to hear anything of putting others down. 
then you start noticing, wow, it's all over the place. It's everywhere. It's hard to even find out what's going on in the world. You know, I was thinking about this. I thought, how do I keep up with current events if I don't want to hear people being criticized? It's, it's almost impossible to get it out of one's life. And later in the Bhagavad Gita, when Krishna talks about what's evil, and he says, people who say, yes, I've destroyed my enemy and soon I'll destroy another enemy. You know, this concept that if somebody hurts me, they better watch out because I'll get back at them. I'll do something to them. And again, we might say, oh, I'm not like that. But if we start looking for it, we might find, you know, sometimes I am like that. Or to be very expert at insulting others. Later in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says the divine nature is to be adverse to fault-finding. Fault-finding implies that there are faults in others. In fact, Krishna says in the Gita that every endeavor is covered by some kind of fault. Like there's smoke that covers fire. This means that everything that everyone does in this world all the time has some fault in it. So it's not difficult to find faults if one looks for them because... Krishna himself is saying they are there. But those who have a divine nature, they're adverse to this fault finding. They're like, I don't want to do that. As soon as we get into putting people down, wishing people ill, fault finding, then we no longer see all these people with an equal mind. Then we think, okay, this is my honest well-wisher. They'll help me. I'll be nice to them. Oh, my affectionate benefactor? Well, they're really nice to me, so I'm really going to be good to them. Neutral? They don't care about me. I won't care about them. Mediators? I can use them to solve my problems. Envious? I'm going to take them down. My friends? I'll help them out. Enemies? I'm really going to make sure I take them down. Pious people, well, I'll say nice things about them, but not always, because I want to be more pious than them. And the sinners will all really criticize them. And I think we see that even among religious groups, including our Hare Krishna movement, that this kind of stuff goes on. And often it goes on with the excuse of religion. You know, well... We are a religion, therefore we have to praise the pious and we have to criticize the sinners. <laughs> we have to talk about our friends and enemies. Yes, I mean, obviously we need to talk about these are good things that will help you in spiritual life and these are bad things that will hurt you in spiritual life. Right? Like I'm talking about criticism and fault-finding, but then we can get into criticizing the criticizers. And it becomes a real problem that I'm finding fault in the fact that you're finding fault. Well, that's okay, right? 
And in this way, in order to establish truth, we ourselves go into falsity. This tendency to want to make ourselves look better by putting down other people or finding faults in other people is very deep-rooted in most human beings. Even if we don't speak it, we tend to think it. And it's sometimes very hard to praise people because somebody will come and say, well, you don't know what she did. I don't know if you really want to praise that person. Yeah? So what are we going to do about this? In one sense, as soon as we become enlightened, we automatically see that everyone is part of God, that everyone is divine. This kind of vision happens even before full spirituality. It happens in what Prabhupada calls the mode of goodness, or in Sanskrit, sattva guna. Sat means what is true, what is good, what is eternal. When one consciousness is in sattva, one sees oh, everybody is a spiritual being, not just humans, animals, trees, plants. And one sees their oneness in spirituality and stops making these kind of distinctions in terms of putting people down. Obviously, we may need to make these kind of distinctions in a very practical sense. But not emotionally thinking that I'm better than somebody else. Having said that this vision occurs naturally to someone who's in sattva, is there a place to practice this vision as part of our spiritual development? Because I think something that happens is we say, all right, yeah, I see faults in others, I put them down, I end up criticizing people, I listen to criticism, I take pleasure in finding fault in others, but that's because I'm not yet spiritually advanced. What can I do? Someday I'll be spiritually advanced and then it will just go away by itself. That's true. But if we're going to become spiritually advanced, we also need to work on this in a deliberate way. And working on these things in a deliberate way is called, in the Bhagavad Gita also, in the 12th chapter, abhyas yoga. Abhyas means something you repeat. It is sort of indicative of some sort of practice. Or we also call it sadhana, some sort of practice. A practice indicates something that is done deliberately and repeatedly whether you particularly feel like it on that day or not. Yeah? If you want to become expert in a musical instrument or at a sport or at typing or anything like that, one engages in some sort of regular, deliberate practice, yes? And it's that regular, deliberate practice that separates the masters in anything from the non-masters. Everybody knows that, right? It's not just a matter of innate talent. Okay, there are some people who have such incredible innate talent that they never have to practice. But that's, you know, one in millions. Even people with great innate practice, innate talent, do regular practice. So there's also a practice of this. That we practice becoming happy at others' happiness. 
happiness. We practice seeing the good. At least we can see the good intentions. Or at least we can see that the other person believes that they have good intentions. There's very few people who believe that they have bad intentions. That's extremely rare. So even if somebody actually has bad intentions, they're not generally aware of it. Yes? There's really very, very few people who wake up in the morning and say, I want to go around doing terrible things because I'm an evil person. That, that's just so unusual. Even the people in the world who are extremely evil and extremely sinful generally think that they're doing something that will benefit the world. You all know that, right? Yes? If we think about, you know, our epitome of evil, like the Nazis, they thought they were going to build an ideal society. Correct? That's what they thought. They thought they were going to create some kind of a utopia. They were, you know, going to kill all the people that weren't part of their utopia. But that, that's actually what they thought. So it wasn't that most of those people were thinking, you know, I'm a cruel person. So at least we can see that people think that they have good motives. The desire to have a wonderful society, that's a good desire, isn't it? We don't agree with how they went about it. But the concept of creating an ideal society, yes, I agree with that. We should create an ideal society, but not by going around putting people in concentration camps and gassing them and starting a world war. Does that make sense to everybody? And one of the ways that I found I, that I can really meditate on the good in people is something that Shiva Prabhupada writes in his preface to the Nectar Devotion. He says that everyone is looking for rasa. Rasa means the pleasure that one gets from a relationship with Krishna. And because everything is part of Krishna, we can try to have that relationship with things and people separate from Krishna. Now, that doesn't work, but it can appear to work. So people are thinking, I'm going to have the pleasure that I should have with the divine with my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my dog, my house, my job, my car, my country, whatever. But what they're looking for is that spiritual pleasure. They're simply looking for it in a wrong way. They're looking for it in a way that will get them, as Prahlad explains in the Bhagavatam, the opposite result to that which they desire. But what, what ultimately they're looking for is something wonderful and good and spiritual, even if they don't think of it that way. So by going to the root of people, we can find something that we can admire. Even as we may say, I don't agree with their behavior. Their behavior is going to cause harm to them and others. Still, one can have no feeling of enmity towards them. And this kind of practice puts us in truth. It puts us in reality. It puts our awareness, our behavior, our mood in reality. And as soon as we are in truth, we start feeling very joyful and very peaceful. 
and very detached from the ups and downs of the world. Which is at least part of what we want in taking up a spiritual process. It's such a powerful thing to find some way one can connect with a living being in their spiritual sense. No matter what they're doing at the moment, no matter what their motives at the moment, no matter how depraved and evil the actions that they are doing. And when we do that, it's not that we lose our discrimination and say, well, going around raping and killing and burning is okay. But we no longer hate anyone or wish them ill. We see everyone with equal love. And we genuinely desire the happiness of everyone. Even those who don't desire our happiness. In that way, we become forgiving. Again, not that we say, you know, sure, rob my house and burn it down. But we can say, I hope you learn what you need to learn joyfully, and I hope you come to real happiness. Maybe you have to get arrested and imprisoned, which is, what can be done? But I desire your happiness. I do not desire for you to suffer. We see a nice example of this in the Bhagavatam, where there was a great war the end of the war, uh, Draupadi's five sons were sleeping, the war was over, and one of the remaining warriors on the other side killed her sons in their sleep. The warrior who killed her sons was himself the son of her husband's teacher. And at first when she saw that her sons had been murdered in their sleep after the war was over, Her husband said, I will catch this murderer and execute him and you can take your bath standing on his head. But when he actually brought the culprit back, she looked at him and said, you know, his father died in the battle. He's the only child. I'm crying that my children have been killed. Why should his mother have to cry that he is killed? Can we find another punishment? Her mood was not, oh, he caused so much suffering for me, let him and his family have an equal amount of suffering or greater. Her mood was, let them not suffer how I've suffered. Let there be some rectification, some punishment that has to be there, but let them not suffer how I've suffered. Now, if we can imagine a world where everyone desired the highest good for everyone else. And everyone saw some good in everyone else. It would be a nice place to live, wouldn't it? And that is ultimately what the spiritual world is. It's not just that the spiritual world, nobody has bodies of flesh and blood that, you know, get colds and sick and broken bones and get old and die. It's not just that. It's not just that it doesn't become too cold or too hot and that the trees give you everything you want and there's Krishna tending his cows and playing his flute. It's not just that, but that everybody desires the greatest good for everyone else. 
and everyone sees the good in everyone else. So a lot of our preparation for entering into that atmosphere is developing that mentality. So we have a few minutes. We have questions, comments. Objections. Yes. Wait, a mic is coming. Thank you. How is this connected with uh, that that um, um, we are not um, that we first don't see ourselves? Um, I'm going to try to say in Slovenian, have somebody translate it. Would that be easier for you? That we don't, don't see um, good things in ourselves first. Oh, that is interesting. There's, there's a lot of people nowadays who say you must love yourself first before you can love others. But... We don't find such a statement. We find that these things happen simultaneously. I mean, Krishna here in the same chapter, in the sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, he talks about loving oneself. So this is in text 20 to 23. In the stage of perfection called trance or samadhi, one's mind is completely restrained from material mental activities by practice of yoga. This perfection is characterized by one's ability to see the self by the pure mind and to relish and rejoice in the self. So in this verse, he's talking about how when we are transcendental, we will relish. Relish means great pleasure and rejoice in the self. Now, it's true that Krishna talked about the nature of the self in the very beginning of the Bhagavad Gita, that we are not this body, that we are not affected by this world. But I find it also interesting that here he's talking about seeing everyone else equally with love, and then he talks about loving ourselves. I see that it's something that goes on concurrently. It's not that I just sit at home loving myself, and then I can go out and be nice to other people. The more I see other people with forgiveness and charity and love, the more loving I will be to myself, and the more loving I will be to myself, the more I will love other people. And I can't do either of them without connecting with the divine. Because it is Krishna who is the center and the hub and the source. If I try to love myself separate from loving Krishna, or I try to be kind to others separate from loving Krishna, it will fail. Then it will be in what we call the mode of passion, or Rajaguna, or even Tamagun. And so you see in modern society, People talk a lot about loving and accepting everyone, and it's, it just isn't working very well, is it? it? It really isn't working very well. One has to be in sattva 
before one can actually see the good in others and look for others' happiness. But yet it, it also is dependent on how we see ourselves. If we are constantly beating ourselves up in our mind, then we will probably always be doing that to others as well. And if we're always beating up other people with our thoughts and words, then we're probably going to beat ourselves too. It, it's very connected. Is that all right? But I don't think it's like an order. You have to do that first. It, it all goes together. I have to connect with Krishna. But I can't connect with Krishna if I'm not nice to everybody. And I can't be nice to everybody unless I'm connected with Krishna. And I can't love myself unless I'm connected with Krishna. And I can't connect with Krishna unless I try to love my real self. And they're all, it's, it's a pattern. They're all very interrelated. I mean, if you're chanting Hare Krishna and you're still beating yourself up in your mind all the time, there's something wrong that's going on with your spiritual practice. And the same way if you're chanting Hare Krishna, but you're going, well, that's devotees like that, that devotees like that, that there's something wrong with your spiritual practice. But if you're trying just, you know, oh, I love myself, I love everyone. And you don't put Krishna at the center. It doesn't, it can't maintain. Something will happen and you lose it and you're like, oh, I guess I don't really love everyone. You know, it's, it's not sustainable. It just lasts as long as everybody's nice. Is that okay? We could talk about that for an hour, frankly. It's quite deep. Anybody else? Yes. <laughs> that was definitely classic comedy. <laughs> yes. Thank you for reciting the shlokas. That was wonderful. Uh, and you mentioned this concept of uh, param satya. Yes. Uh, you also equated it and also gave a note that some people have problem with it. Uh, I think it's about the interpretation. Yes. Uh, when you say absolute, and uh, there's also the concept of Paramatma. Yes. So it, uh, I, I have a feeling that it talks about self-truth as well. And, uh, and accepting the, the truth of self. So I think that's, like, I just want to get your thoughts. That, that, was, that was, thank you. Thank you. That was most helpful. Mm. Anybody else? Comment or question? Yes. Uh, what about the energies? Uh, because sometimes we, we cannot get along with each other because of the energies there. So what's there? Mm. Well, even in the body, you know, the heart muscle hangs out with other heart muscle. <laughs> and the stomach cells hang out with stomach cells. And even in the spiritual world, there are, we are eternally personalities. And we do tend to associate even eternally in our spiritual forms with others who want to serve Krishna and have a similar mood to ourselves. That is a very natural thing. My god sister Yamuna, at one point she was just living with one other devotee kind of separately. And some other people were criticizing them. Oh, they're not coming with everyone else. 
And Prabhupada said, if you have two that are compatible, you can make nice advancement, and 200 that are not compatible, nobody will make any advancement. So there, uh, there are many, many statements by our, our teachers, our acharyas, and the scriptures stating that we want to be with like-minded people. I mean, this is really... If we think about why are there different religions, even in, if it was a perfect society, everybody wouldn't be following exactly the same religious tradition. It's kind of interesting, if you look at the Vedas, the Vedic religion has many, many branches and sub-branches within it. It's not a monolithic type of belief and practice as we see in so many religions today, that everybody has to do exactly the same thing. The Vedic system is not like that. So if, if we had a world that was operating by Vedic principles, it would allow for a lot of diversity. And people would be able to go to those areas where they had compatibility and they had some comfort. And this is even true within ISKCON. This is even true within a particular temple. You know, there was this one astrologer that said Srila Prabhupada could build a house in which the whole world would live. But I don't think he intended for it to be a studio apartment. <laughs> you know, so a house has many rooms. And there's different activities that go on. But this doesn't mean that there has to be fault-finding and criticizing. I'm glad you brought this up because sometimes what appears to be a fault in someone else is just that they have a very different type of personality than us. And we call, Prabhupada called this organization ISKCON, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Now, I don't know how many different nationalities and ethnicities are in this room, at least superficially. It doesn't look like it's a wide range. But in our ISKCON movement, some of our centers, you look around the room, and you know, there's every color and every shape and every whatever. And we also have different cultures. You know, I, I'm very aware as I travel around the world that having been born and raised in America, and especially in New York City, and especially in Manhattan, that my native culture is not compatible with a lot of the rest of the world. You know, as soon as I'm in New York, I'm like, yes! People are no longer going to think that I'm intense and aggressive. Because everybody's like that. Oh, and I, I mean, people will say to me, oh, really, you're so intense. And I'm thinking, well, try growing up in Manhattan. So one of the few places I feel very comfortable out of New York, interesting enough, is Australia. But we have, the, we have differences in culture. We have differences in personality. And we can often attribute these differences to character flaws. You know, some people are leaders, some people are followers. It just is what it is what it is. We can't expect everybody to be like us. So, I mean, I, I've done a, a tremendous amount of study of personality types 
and cross-cultural dealings, cross-cultural communications. But especially when we're dealing with this very international society, it's something to keep in mind. That, you know, to immediately decide. I mean, a very good friend of mine is a French-American, and she married a South Indian Brahmana. A week after the wedding, one of my friends asked him, how is it going? He said, my wife is so rude. <laughs> but it was just a cultural difference. It wasn't, she wasn't, she's not a rude person at all. So, to keep this sort of thing in, in mind, you know, if, if you study anything about personality styles and character, even within the same culture, even often within the same family, we have different ways of doing things, and, and different things that we prioritize is important to us. So, you know, some of us prioritize getting along and being part of a team, and some of us prioritize more, well, I'm going to get things done. And those things are not always compatible with one another. So it's... We want to learn how to, how to work with and get along with people who are very different from us. At the same time, it's probably a good idea in our spiritual life to have some association of people who are compatible, that we do understand them and they understand. Both of those things need to go along simultaneously. Some other thoughts. Thank you for bringing that up. Can someone to humiliate you in, the pub, in public? If someone humiliates you in public, yeah? No, maybe someone. Maybe. Yes. It's better that that the person say thank you and go away. Yes, that's not always easy. That's also something to practice, but that will be another class. <laughs> I'm actually working on that. I'm working on a series of classes on the third verse of the Shikshastika. So I'm thinking to have one class on the grass part, one part class on the tree part, one part on one class on not expecting respect, and one class on respecting others. So so far all I've done is I've put the headings on the slides and I put a few quotes in the notes boxes. So I'm working on it little by little, and maybe next time I come to Slovenia I'll have that ready. And the part about not expecting respect will deal with things like that. What do you do if someone humiliates you in public? Whoa. <laughs> One of the worst, right? Or if someone spreads rumors of, you know, lying rumors about you. Wow. Yes. So I'm not going to go there today because we have some more of the program to have today. Hi, <coughs> Krishna. So I have a question. Yes. Um, I suppose it would be about boundaries and when is it appropriate uh, to provide each other feedback. I try to consider 
as the feedback I want to give. Is it kind? Is it helpful? Is it true? Um, but you know, we talk about being tolerant towards each other, um, and I'm, I'm just considering what is the idea uh, among the votees when is it appropriate to offer feedback? I was wondering if anybody was going to bring this up. Sometimes you can feel it's very interesting. You said about respect, expecting respect. And there's something moments when maybe receiving feedback from somebody or just generally their behaviour is like, okay, I'm, I'm practicing tolerance, but actually I won't tolerate this behaviour. And mm. sometimes it's even with devotees. How would you. So you're talking about boundaries when other people criticise us? Or are we talking about when can I offer constructive criticism to others? I think both, actually. Yeah. Okay, well, the first one I'm going to put in the same category. Mm -hmm that I'd like to save that for another class. I think it's, it's one of the most important and valuable things we need to look at, but it's, for, it's 440. And you can only cover so many things in one class. So I'd like to look at the other, which is more related to what I was focusing on today. And if that, if that is okay. It's not that the other isn't crucially important. But is what are my boundaries in terms of offering helpful negative feedback to others? You know, and I was thinking, is anyone going to ask this? Is anyone going to ask this? Or are they just all going to think it and not ask it? If we, if we are adverse to fault finding and we see everyone equally, does this mean that I absolutely can never give anybody any sort of information about their character or their behavior that they will perceive as negative. Now, first of all, if we have a general default value of being adverse to fault funding, if that's our default, our default, okay, that we're not going to find fault, then we're going to be very safe. So if I say, if I have to make a mistake here, I'm going to make a mistake of not giving negative feedback. Of just giving positive feedback or silence. There are some times when it's part of our job, it's part of our service to Krishna to give negative feedback. If we're a parent with our child, we have to sometimes say to them, you cannot hit your brother over the head with your toy fire truck. You have to go stand in the corner. That's part of our job. And if we don't do that, our children will end up being delinquents and criminals. If we're a teacher, we have to do that with our student. You cannot just say, this essay is just like Shakespeare when it's rotten. You know, you have to tell them, hey, you know, your grammar's wrong over here. You need to give them negative feedback. The same thing if you're in charge of something, if you're in charge of the deity worship and some pujari puts a pin into the Lord's arm, you have to say something. I mean, this is, this is part of the service. So whenever we're responsible for training people or we're responsible for people getting a job done, it is absolutely necessary to say things to them that are indicative that they have done something wrong. Now, if we only tell them the wrong things we do, then that there's something wrong with us. You know, then again, we have the wrong mentality. And there's, 
there's a whole science. I mean, there's plethora of books and courses as to how to give people negative feedback that will enhance their performance and enhance their relationship. And I could certainly give a class on that, but again, that's beyond the scope of the time that we have. But just to say that if you are a parent, a teacher, a manager, a leader, that part of doing one's service in a way that's pleasing to Krishna is to learn how to give people feedback about something they've done wrong in a way that will inspire them to fix the situation rather than simply as a way to overlord them and tell them that they're a jerk and you're better than them. Sorry, that was my New York style. <laughs> but, you know, if, if, it's, if I'm using the fact that I have a position as well, now I have permission. My position gives me permission to just blame the people then I'm misusing my position. You know, my, my position is to inspire people and to uplift them, to get them to feel intelligent and competent. And I've seen, I was once took a course with two instructors. One of them lifted people up and the other one put them down. It was very interesting. And watching them, I started thinking, now what kind of a teacher am I? So it, if you're a parent, study how to be a parent. If you're a teacher, study how to be a teacher. If you're a leader, study how to be a leader. That when we have to tell people they've done something wrong, that they come away from that conversation feeling inspired to do the right thing, not depressed or vengeful, which is really bad. Now let's say we don't have a position of authority over somebody. To what extent can we give them negative feedback? The answer is not much. You know, really not much. It's not generally the thing that's done with friends. Like Arjuna in the beginning of Bhagavad Gita, he and Krishna were friends. And it's like, I'm really having a hard time. And Krishna doesn't say much. And then Arjuna says, can you be my teacher? And then Krishna says, you know, <laughs> you're speaking really pleasant words like someone who really knows stuff, but only fools talk like that. So politely, he politely called him a fool. That was the first thing he did, but Arjuna changed the relationship. So there's not that much that we should take this mood with a friend. If that friend temporarily becomes our student, we can do that. Or like I think as a teacher, you know, right now all of you sitting here, you're here voluntarily, I hope. You know, and, and so for this space of time, you're all voluntarily putting yourself in the role of my student. And I've said some pretty strong, heavy things in this presentation. Now, I, I try to say things in a way that people will not be individually offended. I, I put myself in the, in the same category. I try to avoid using you. I try to say we. I talk about people in general. And anybody can always think that I'm not talking to them. I'm talking about somebody sitting at the other part of the room. 
you know, but after the class is over, that relationship is no longer operative. So I can't go up to any of you after the class and give the same direct, heavy instruction because we've broken that contract. Does that understand? If we're just sitting down and eating together, I can't say, you know, so how have you been critical of people lately? It would be very inappropriate. I think the problem comes up when I don't have any authority or position over someone. In fact, I can have a position under them and I think they've done something that should be corrected. First thing to keep in mind is that in this world, we all have some feeling that I could be better, a better God than God. And this feeling, this is why we go to God and ask for all kinds of things that he's not doing. Which happens in every religion. Okay, my dear Lord, I love you very much. Would you please do this and this and this and this and this and this. We may have our ways of doing that. It's basically saying, you know, I'm your boss. I don't know why you haven't given me enough money. What is wrong with you? You know, come on, get it together. So that mood we tend to have on anybody who to some extent represents God in our life. Anyone who's over us in power and authority and seems to be controlling what we have in life our governments, our parents, maybe our spouse, our employers, or, you know, the temple president, anybody who has some position where they have some control over the resources and the facility and the life that we have. They represent God to some extent to us. And so we're going to have a very strong tendency to want to tell them how to do their job without wanting to help them do their job. To just simply tell them how to do their job and to be critical of how they're doing their job. So the first thing to recognize is that ultimately we're criticizing God when we do this. And that we should be triply or quadruply or ten times hesitant whenever we jump to criticize someone who has some power over us. Because there's probably going to be some other motive going on. I mean, look, if even the Nazis thought that they were helping the world, and most of them actually thought like that, they really did, not all of them, but most of them genuinely believed that. So we are all capable of fooling ourselves as to our motives. It's not just that they were some other species of humans. So we should be particularly careful. And then... Leaders and authorities should have some bona fide means of offering suggestions. You know, I saw a photograph of suggestion box written on, on, bless you, on top of a shredder. You know? So it, it is very important in Vedic society that kings would have some time every week or every month when the citizens could come and offer some sort of complaint. So this is also important that, the, that people, and whether you're a parent or a teacher or employer or whatever, that you make a path for people. And that you take people, what people say seriously. 
that we should be especially we should be very very careful. At the same time, yeah, if we see some problem, especially if it's criminal, you know. But again, is it criminal or is it just something I disagree with? You know. To what extent can I go out of the bounds of, of etiquette and, and relationships? And if we go out of those bounds, if it's not criminal, and we're not doing it properly, then we'll end up causing more trouble than we're trying to solve. And you can see this all over the world. That often the people who are trying to fix things cause as much or more trouble than the things that they're trying to fix. Yes? Am I correct? So it needs to be done carefully, you know, with, with a lot of introspection, with a lot of thought, with a lot of honesty. Very, very carefully. A lot of hesitancy. Criminal things is something else, you know, call the police. You know? Not that we should, oh, I don't want to find any faults, so, you know. But thank you for asking. So I think we'll stop here because that's another, we could talk about that for a week or two, I'm sure. <laughs> but I'm, I was hoping somebody would bring it up. Thank you very much. Sure, we'll probably have to